Welcome to the first episode of my brand new podcast series, Financial Crime Matters. I'm Kieran Beer, the chief analyst for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. And this series will feature the topics and people who are making a difference in fighting financial crime. In the first episode, I'm really pleased to be able to delve into the 1MDB scandal, asking who was behind it, why it went on for so long, and what happens now with regard to the regulatory and legislative fallout throughout the globe. There's no better person to have this discussion with than Bradley Hope. He's the co-author of the new book, Billion Dollar Whale, and a Wall Street Journal reporter. Enjoy our chat, and don't forget to subscribe, because financial crime matters. matters to you, and it matters to me. Here we go. So for somebody who's just returning from another planet, and they need that understanding of what MDB is, who the heck Jolo is, and uh, also Najib Razik. Who are all these people, these characters around this very interesting and sort of full book that you and Tom have written, Billion Dollar Whale? How would you explain it to them in a nutshell? I would say it's one of the great financial crime scandals of our time, and it will be one that sticks with us for a long time, not just because of the scale, But it's also because this scandal is a little bit more perfect than other scandals. The guy at the center of it is this guy called Joe Lo. He was just a young Malaysian guy. Really, there was no reason to know who Joe Lo was. Ambitious guy. Yeah, yeah, a young, ambitious guy, but also not even all that cultured or full of ideas that are particularly interesting. You know, he wasn't an entrepreneur. He wasn't even a banker or anything like that. He never had a real job, actually. He was just a young guy in this little place called Penang. His family was moderately wealthy. They were millionaires, which is a lot of money in Malaysia as it is anywhere. And they had dreams of even more. So the father sent this guy, Joe Lo, to Harrow, the fancy British boarding school. And that's where he got his first taste, what it's like to be extremely wealthy and also to have power and prestige. If you're a millionaire like he was, he was almost nouveau riche. His dad was a business guy. He did a few good deals and they made money. Now he saw the Sultan of Brunei's children. He saw uh, the children of... Middle Eastern princes and kings. It's a good crowd at Harrow. Yeah. From there, he went on to Wharton School, which, again, he met similar types of people. And I guess he just got it in his head that he wanted to be someone big. And to be someone big, you had to have more money than you could possibly imagine at your fingertips. There's a lot of signs of deception from this guy as well from an early age. We write in the book about how even when he's trying to impress some friends, he borrowed his dad's friend's yacht and he changed all the pictures to make it look like it's his family. Then at Wharton, we found all these examples that he had been plagiarizing Solomon Smith Barney analyst reports and putting them into the Wharton journal as his own stock picks. He had a little private equity thing he created. It's really unclear what that vehicle did or if it was successful. I tend to think it was just a chance for him to get a lot of other people's money together and borrow money and sort of juice returns, almost like a Madoff situation. But the really big moment for him was when he, he went on a tour of the Middle East kind of like aided by some of these friends. And he met for the first time people in Abu Dhabi. And back then Abu Dhabi was really not on the map. This was in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And he got to understand this idea of a sovereign wealth fund. And not just your typical old school sovereign wealth fund, which is kind of, I mean, to be honest, they're a little bit boring. They're just a lot of big passive investments. But he sees a different kind of He meets this this guy, Khaldun al-Mubarak, who's running one called Mubadala. It's a new kind of sovereign fund. It's extremely strategic. 
the way you count your returns is also just in contributions to the economy. And it's also just kind of a sexier job. In, in Abu Dhabi, they're trying to bring in AMD to build, to make microchips in Abu Dhabi. And, mm-hmm. and they're building a new financial center. So it was like an interesting real estate play. He loved that. And at the same time as all this was going on, his family was living in, in the same neighborhood in London where all the other rich Malaysians lived. And that's when he started to get to know the family of Najib Razak. It's not a fair comparison, but they sometimes call themselves the Kennedys of Malaysia because many generations in politics, his dad was an extremely famous prime minister of Malaysia. So Jolo and his brother, Zin, they started getting closer to this family. Back then, Najib was actually the minister of defense. He was not yet the person he would become, but they saw in him a good ally. So the two worlds collide in Malaysia. He's done with school. He's trying to figure out what to do, how to make some money. And he convinces to make a long story short, he convinces somebody else to create a sovereign wealth fund in Malaysia, but it doesn't work out. And he convinces Najib to take it over. Najib realizes this is a fund that can make him look like he's doing good things for Malaysia. At the same time, it's kind of turns out to be a slush fund for him yeah. for his own political operations and eventually a personal slush yeah. fund. What I like to think about that 1MDB, which stands for One Malaysia Development Berhad, One Malaysia was the prime minister's electoral campaign. You know, the idea of uniting all of Malaysia. There's three prominent ethnicities there, Chinese, Malay, and Indian. And so the idea was, let's have a unified country. So there's layers of scam at this fund. On one level, it's just doing things that makes him look good. The next layer is it has these affiliated charities that are actually receiving money in a kind of a kickback fashion that are used in almost nakedly political ways. For example, one of the big deals the seller of an asset agreed to sell it at an inflated price, but he was going to kick back some of the extra profit into this charity. And this charity became almost well known to be, this is how we're helping Najib with his electoral campaign. So it would do things like build low-income housing in a neighborhood where the votes are needed. And then the third deeper level of the scandal, which is what we all learned later in the game, is the whole thing was also weeping money out in enormous ways, you know, billions of dollars that were going missing, but it was borrowed money. So in a sense, no one really fully grasped it, even until a few years ago. To put all this in perspective, there was some money then that did actually go to build uh, housing in certain neighborhoods? Yeah, the the charity did that kind of thing, like low-income housing, your typical corporate social responsibility style stuff. But we're talking about how much do you think was disappeared then? It was about a $10 billion fund in total. Yeah, I think by the end with the debt, and interest combined, it became like about $13 billion of borrowed funds, essentially. We think that upwards of $5 billion was outright stolen. Mm-hmm. And then other parts of that were spent on actual assets. So it wasn't like a, a shell. You know, they, yeah. it was buying things and it was launching projects. Very few of them actually became something. This $5.5 billion, it isn't clear how much of this, but a lot of it went to Cristal Champagne parties that involved millions of dollars of crystal, and then trips and houses in London. Yeah, yeah. So this guy, Joe Lowe, he was, you know, in his late 20s. One day, he was a rich kid. The next day, he had $700 million of cash. And it, it, he really just went on one of the great spending sprees that will be hard to top. It's kind of boggles the mind. He had to have lots of co-conspirators. He paid off a lot. He, a lot of people got paid a lot of money. One particular guy who's in jail in Abu Dhabi, Kadam Kabesi, he took control of $472 million. It's no small amount. And it even took him a long time to spend that. But so Jolo, the first thing he did 
when he got this money. I mean, you can kind of imagine any 20-something-year-old guy does. He just went crazy. He flew to Vegas. He flew to New York. Everything was private jets, suites. He had a $100,000 a month apartment in Manhattan. The best way to really see this is um, there's an early New York Post article. It was in page six, I believe, where they describe this young Malaysian whale. That's where the word came from, because people who spend a lot of money in casinos or in nightclubs are called whales. Everybody in New York was talking about this whale who was going into nightclubs and dropping hundreds of thousands of dollars in a night. Eventually, he got to start spending up to $2 million in a single night. They had to invent new ways for him to spend that much money because literally $2 million will buy you so much champagne, people will be drinking it for weeks on end. So they had to come up with ways to... They were showering one another with Cristal. Yeah, they were showering one another, but they also they created these performances right. that are called bottle parades what? where women in skimpy clothes came out with these giant bottles and there's sparklers and sometimes a motorcycle would be driven out or whatever really was obsessed with celebrities and he spent a lot of money to get close to them. Leonardo DiCaprio, Jamie Foxx, other people that would, uh, a lot of people in the music business. And he was flying people in the music business to do these short one hour sets for huge amounts of money to any of his big parties and this kind yeah. of thing. So this went on for what, seven years? The peak of it was the six years. And so we're talking about theft in plain sight. When you read your book, it's like, wait, how did he get away with this for so long? Yeah, well, because the money was borrowed, it's a funny feeling, but if you have your savings account with $1,000 in it and someone steals $900, it sort of hits you in the face right away. Like, my hard-earned savings is gone. But if someone steals some kind of a complex debt related to you and they kind of leave a note saying, oh, it's in this box over here, don't worry about it. There's a funny thing about debt versus savings. I can't remember how much money is in the Caymans that's supposed to be there and they keep borrowing against when there's there's talk about solvency they say no no the money's in the caymans and that kind of faint works for years right it does yeah and even worse than that several generations of auditors like don't figure that out they never push hard enough to really figure it out eventually there's always a more compliant auditor who comes next and at least in this story and because you can hire and fire your auditor too yeah. if you don't they went through they kept going through them yeah. every time someone asked too many questions they got the next big four firm the other way he got away with it is that enough of the right people were being paid off. The prime minister of Malaysia was the ultimate steward of this fund. It's not yet known exactly when or how or exactly what he knew. There's no doubt that he knew that there were lots of abuses going on. But it's not clear to us that he knew that billions were literally going out the back door into Jolo's personal bank account. So Najib was not looking into it. He gave his full trust and control to this guy. And he was receiving vast benefits for himself. He was being told stories like, oh, this is a donation from Saudi Arabia. Obviously, now we know that was all completely fictional. The people that should have been looking into it weren't. Najib was the head of this board of advisors of 1MDB. The auditors, they just kept shifting through them. The bankers, when something didn't go right, or, when, or even when someone kind of didn't want a transaction to go through, there was always another banker, there was always another bank. And even things like in Malaysia, the media is not as free as it is in many other countries like the United States. When the scandal was erupting, the government shut down this one paper for a period of time just because they were reporting the truth. But I would say this, though. The reason we know about it right now isn't just because of some dogged Western institutions or law enforcement. It all began in Malaysia, which was itself kind of a pretty democratic country. It had these people there that figured out something bad was going on. And they had a task force and they were really making progress on it and they got shut down. That's when the rest of us... Yeah, there was an ethics committee. Yeah, there was, a, there was what they called a special task force. Special task and force. they didn't know the full picture, but they knew there were some very disturbing things that were going on. 
they really figured out a lot of stuff. They were sending out financial intelligence unit requests to other countries and they were getting back information. They were doing good. And they were even planning to arrest the prime minister, not on this grand corruption scheme, but on some minor corruption schemes related to it. They were starting to build a picture, but Najib got wind of what was going on and everybody was replaced, either replaced or fired or taken into his prime minister's office and, and basically told to sit in an empty room and wait. There's even one person that died. Still a mystery about what kind of mysterious circumstances. Yeah. 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 And it was a newspaper that was aggressive in reporting some yes. of this there in several. Malaysia. Yeah. And then, of course, there was a Clara Newcastle Brown's Sarawak yes. report. Who we, She's actually been a guest at our conferences. And yes. She did a lot of amazing work, especially in those early days. I'm sure it was pretty harrowing for her at times. But in the end, it turned out that she was mostly right about what she wrote about. Yeah. You guys, how do you get involved in this at the Wall Street Journal, you yeah. and Tom? Tom was involved before I was. So Tom is um, a longtime Asia reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He's based in Hong Kong. He's and based in Hong Kong. and he's for, for the audience at home, we're doing this from London right now. You're based here in London. Yeah, I'm based in London. I was in New York before, and I spent a long time in the Middle East before that. So that's kind of how I got involved, actually. Tom wrote a big story about that second layer of fraud, the kickbacks into the charity. That put him on the map for the Malaysians who were doing investigations. So then his big break was this idea that $681 million was deposited into the prime minister's personal bank account. Actually, at the time, nobody really understood what it fully meant. We just kind of knew there were some funny problems going on. There might be some money missing. Yeah, it might be some money missing. There were some problems. So that 681 was actually just a big mystery. You know, what's it all about? When I saw that story, I got in touch with him because there was a mention of some of these Abu Dhabi institutions. And I just had some background. And I just started helping out with some of the stories. And then eventually we had the next big breakthrough, which is one that I led up, which was discovering that all this money had gone missing between 1MDB and Abu Dhabi. It all began with very basic financial statement analysis because the Malaysians would write on their financial statements that they have $1.4 billion as a deposit with this Abu Dhabi institution. But the Abu Dhabi institution said, that it had received $40 million and they were awaiting more money. So there was obviously something going on there. And we were able to use our sources to really figure out that it's missing. It's completely missing. There was a huge Wall Street Journal, and there still is, a whole Wall Street Journal team of people who play different roles in the OMDB coverage. Because, for example, a lot of the stuff we didn't know yet, which is that Joe Lowe was a major collector of art. So we have a colleague who's an amazing art reporter called Kelly Crow, And she went out and found out through her sources all the art that Joe Lowe bought. Among the many instances of compliance within a bank bridling at a wire transaction and slowing it down or actually saying we're not doing business with Joe Lowe or somebody connected to 1MDB, one of the things that's very detailed in the book is the attempt that Joe Lowe makes to buy a Van Gogh. I mean, you've got to have a Van Gogh when you're living large. And a bank that he'd actually done a lot of business with, the Swiss bank, Falcon Bank, saying, you know, this doesn't make sense. We've done, I think they've done some similar transaction past, but this one they said no on. Jolo had to go to another bank to get this painting bought. These kinds of incidents are there throughout the book in which sometimes compliance seems kind of brave, sometimes kind of weak, sometimes... Yeah. I mean, I think one lesson is that whenever there's a kind of a hiccup in the compliance process, you should <laughs> treat it very seriously because... There was many times in the OMDB scandal when somebody said, wait a second, can you just make sure you explain that one more time? And a, a wholly insufficient explanation was given. One of my favorite ones is that a bank, I forget which one, Jolo was transferring money to his father, who was then transferring it back to him into another account and then on to other things. And they said, why, why are you doing that? Like, why are you going back and forth? And he said, 
I've explained this once before, and I don't have to explain it again. This is a very sensitive Asian cultural tradition where, where I, my father made it possible for me to make this money. So I give it all to him, and then he gives it back to me minus a small amount. And it's, it's a, a gesture, a, a gesticulation of goodwill between us. And that just is obviously ridiculous, cool. you know? Crap. There's other examples that are also worrying, but I, I feel bad for some compliance people in this case because the capture is so high up that it's almost hard for someone to imagine what's going on. So there's a bank called Falcon Bank that's actually owned by the Abu Dhabi entity that is involved in this scandal. Mm-hmm. And the guy who runs that Abu Dhabi you entity... You mentioned that they were involved yeah. in the painting and yeah. other things too. But yeah, exactly. It's called IPIC and it has a subsidiary, Abar. But they own this bank and the, the bank, the guy's on the phone saying, this is crazy. What you're trying to do with this paperwork is absolutely insane. Like we're all going to be in a serious trouble. But in the end, what does he do? He just puts it through because the owner tells him to put it through. Maybe that's a lesson about the role of small banks. Why would a small bank be involved in these major transactions? There's probably not a good reason for it. It's a red flag for certainly other banks. It's Goldman Sachs, which we haven't gotten to yet. One of the red flags that they missed that is a problem for them is that they're raising these bonds for OneMDB. And OneMDB wanted the money deposited in its account at a small Swiss bank. And a lawyer for Goldman Sachs notified the bank saying, this doesn't make sense. There's no reason to be using this Swiss bank used by Italians. Why is one to be using this bank? And people just thought it was it was a small blip, but it turned out to be a, a siren that everyone was missing. You mentioned Goldman Sachs, who's being threatened by the Malaysian government. They want to have more than the 2.7 billion or 75 billion, whatever it is, that was the underwriting. The Justice Department is talking about a large fine. I believe your paper reported 2 billion from Goldman. Kind of makes you think like if you'd listened to compliance in the first place, you might have saved yourself this money. But who's liable? How does this play out? Jolo's a fugitive. Yeah. Uh, wrap up where the story is now and where you think it might go. Yeah. Well, so in the last, I would say, year, it's been the craziest period for the scandal so far because all the answers are kind of coming out in greater and greater detail. But also the Malaysian government changed. That guy, Najib, was, was voted well, partly out. Partly on this matter, yeah, right? I would partly. say largely on this largely matter. Largely on this yeah, matter, actually, right. His mentor essentially yeah. came in and removed him. So that was a complete surprise. And a lot of crazy things happened after that. They found all this stuff in Najib's house. An insane amount of jewelry and handbags to the point where there's just no good explanation for it. So the DOJ is kind of stepping it up. They, they have these civil cases against the assets they're trying to recover. But now they've brought their first criminal charges. A very senior partner at Goldman Sachs pled guilty to... FCPA violations, like really bad stuff. And that's still ongoing. One of the next things we're expecting is Goldman and the U.S. government to announce whatever settlement they might reach. That could include anything up to a deferred prosecution agreement or even a criminal charge against a subsidiary of Goldman, multi-billion dollar fines. So there's still a ton of criminal actions that are pending. And And other countries like Switzerland, for example, hasn't really brought any cases yet, but they've made a huge noises about investigating it. They haven't brought any cases. The Malaysians, they've charged the prime minister with 30 plus crimes, same for his wife, who's this figure of excess. There's all this information coming out about how China kind of used the opportunity caused by the scandal to seize control of Malaysia from afar and using Zhou Lu himself, who is believed to be in China under the protection of the Chinese government. They used him to sort of get Malaysia to sign on for this Belt and Road way more than they'd ever done before and just increase their ties and, and exchange. This was under Najib, who yeah. who was therefore starting to feel desperate about funds and being yes. caught. And yeah. yeah, and in a way, the people in Malaysia never felt the cost of this scandal when he was a prime minister because he was doing all this crazy stuff in the back. He was getting money through these obscure channels from China, essentially, to make payments. 
Now Malaysians are feeling it for the first time. It's kind of unjust under the new government. So people are saying, oh, the new government, it's not so great because of them. But actually, they're just feeling the cost of this scandal for the first time. Yeah, yeah. So the Malaysians are really hopeful that they're going to start selling some assets. They got Joe Lowe's yacht, $250 million yacht. Also looking at refinancing and different things, you know, to try to get themselves much on the right Do you have track. any sense of how much of the money is going to get recovered on the basis uh, of what assets have been seized? I, I think it won't be a positive story in the end because so much was sort of ferreted away, but so much was spent in a way you can't you get can't it back. You can't resell Cristal Champagne. Yeah, actually. and like all the Once casino, you, you know, the, the like seven-figure casino bills yeah, and all yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's also because of this complex ferreting of assets across the globe, this story will continue for another 10 years, I'm sure. Yeah. And it's unclear if Joe Lo will ever be caught. You know, he can just stay in China as long as he wants, as long as China will have him. Well, Bradley Hope, I want to thank you for taking this time to talk with me about your book, Billion Dollar Whale, a great book by you and your co-author, Tom Wright. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Thanks for listening, folks. If you want to hear more about what matters in all things anti-money laundering and anti-financial crime, be sure to subscribe to Financial Crime Matters with me, Karen Beer, on SoundCloud or iTunes.